Yeah, no, but Do you want to have a breakfast? It was yeah. with a sad little, little uh, oh. the, the, the voice. <laughs> so we'll start recording. We'll be belting I, and bellowing. I, I had a banana. Isn't oh, that really, oh. really boring? It's exciting. Yeah, I don't believe you. Well, yeah. I always get laughed at for what I have for breakfast. Oh, Which is what? It's a piece of quiche. It's I love it. But it's eggs and pastry, and that's what lots of people have for breakfast. No one has eggs and I pastry for breakfast. I think you've of that. I just heard someone's stomach rumble. It wasn't. Did you? Yeah, obviously thinking about quiche. Oh, about quiche. Oh, right. Yeah. Maybe like this or something. <laughs> Good. Hey. All right, then. Uh, shall we actually start? Good. Hey, welcome back to the studio, everyone. After a nice bit of time wandering the Nordics, uh, we're back in the lovely studio with lovely people. So let's just say hello. Ian from Internet Retailing. Vera from Salesforce. Rhea from Beyond Retro. Rachel from Radley. David from Decker's Brands. David from Decker's Brands. All right, you went last, David, so the last shall become first. Hello. Now, just in case anyone hasn't heard you speaking at our events, uh, read about you in the magazine, just tell us uh, about Decker's and the brand that actually everyone's heard about, <laughs> not Decker's itself. So Decker's Brands, a US company... Um, we've got several brands that are uh, under our portfolio, but the one that everyone knows is UGG, famous for its boots oh. and other product. Right. And they're like crack cocaine for young people who <laughs> insist on wearing them everywhere. They certainly are. <laughs> so there's UGG the Phenomenon. Uh, what about the other things in there as well? So we have other brands. We have a, a brand called Hoka, which is growing very fast, one of the biggest, fastest shoe running shoe brands that are out there at the moment. Yeah. Very much around the uh, marathon community, but it's, it's coming out there soon, so look out for that. And we have the ever-stable Teva brand, um, known for its sandals. Can't argue with that. Now, listen, we haven't seen you for a while because you've been globetrotting. Uh, <laughs> so uh, tell us about your role, because you, you were elevated from merely single-channel e-com and now bestride the world like a multi-channel colossus. <laughs> so just give us a, a thumbnail of what you've been up to. Well, it's uh, it's been an interesting ride with Deckers. I mean, first of all, I was given the uh, the great opportunity of managing the Japanese e-commerce business, mm -hmm. um, which was a great opportunity to understand a different region and eat its lovely fish. I've also recently, I took on uh, the retail business for Europe as well. And again, that's... You know, let's see, that's a great opportunity to try and pull e-commerce and retail together as channels, for as we know, consumers see them as one. Mm. And so just enlighten us as to, you know, what was the difficult part of that? I'm not sure there are many, but <laughs> you know, we all talk about omni-channel as if somehow, you know, we're dragging these stores to a digital way, but you were already digitalizing all well, sort the of stores out as well. So, so what was the challenge for you in bringing those together? The interesting thing about the channels is once you start going into them, the things that drives the people within each channel is, is relatively similar. We just go about them in slightly different ways. And I'm talking about the people here. You know, there are people in our stores who, are, who love the brand, who are able to really merchandise and sell that story to consumers. And that's what we try and do online through technology or other means. So it's, it's, it's very, very little difference there. We're all trying to get new customers into our stores, new customers on, online, and hopefully the same customers. You're, you're driven by the same things. I think... But the most interesting thing and why I'm hoping to try and pull together is the online traders who are working in that world all the time looking at personalization technologies. How can you, how can you pull some of the experience and great things you have in store into that online experience? And 
And I think that's an area of ground that some, some retailers do well. Um, it's a, really, a real big struggle. Well, when you say the online experience, I don't want to denigrate anybody, but you know, online tends to be two-dimensional, mm. pile of thumbnails in a grid, click, buy, discount, job done. Yes. Whereas you've been investing a lot uh, in pretty posh stores where <laughs> you know the the UGG boot can uh, be resplendent in its own space. You know, what what is that experience? What are you aiming for, especially in your flagships? The flagships are so important, especially these days. They are the physical location where people feel your brand. And when you're a direct consumer brand, they're really important. That's every element of it from walking into the store to the way it's merchandised to some of the the fit-outs, the capabilities that are there have to ooze the essence of the brand. And and as I said, that's very difficult to put online with the the thumbnails, etc. So Hmm. it's trying to align those two is what we're striving to achieve. But that comes around, you know, how how do consumers come into your brand on the website? What content do they see? What experiences do they see before they do get to that more transactional element? But those stores take a long time to to refit, to, to, to really get that brand essence in there. Okay, so you've got these great stores. What's the difference between stores in the UK and Japan then? Is, is that a universal? Stores in Japan and the UK... Um, there's a lot of similarities there. You're still trying to get across the brand in the same way. The consumers actually interact in, in very much the same way on, in, in the stores, in um, the same need to, to tell the stories to the consumers, the same type of products that's there. I think it, when it starts coming into the, the interactions, certainly between the store staff, there, there are different differences there, just the cultural differences that you have there. Um, we're obviously a little bit more forward in, in the UK than they are over there, a lot more reserved. Uh, and then compared to the US where it's, it's very much much more customer service focused. So mm. each, each location differs. From a website point of view, I can probably talk about that. That's obviously an area that I was focusing much more with in Japan. Yeah. It's all the subtle differences. People, people are still using mobiles. They still want their own payment types. They still want... They still want the information that we want. That we need to have there, but I think it's the little subtle differences. Like um, as I said, they're still very traditional. Still love cash on delivery as a, as a payment option, and incredibly important to get done there. There's very little fraud over there. Um, consumers just really yeah. too polite, too, too polite, polite to steal, too polite to steal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, low return rates. Is, I think there's there are, there are cultural acceptances there that are very different to us yeah. and our and our, our desire to you know sends trucks back and forth uh, with, with product in, in, in UK and Europe. Wow. Out of interest, what were some of the learning curves for you going into Japan, what you would do differently now? I think a lot of it is, is uh, if, if you end up working with a, a different culture, is, is respecting that culture, respecting you know, how decision flows are made, accepting that the Japanese culture is to do things thoroughly, um, hierarchically, but once you get that commitment, they throw everything at it and um, and do an amazing job. Mm. But it's being able to, to to work within that world when we're in we're in the world with the US. We work for a US company, which is very much about agile methodology, moving quickly and and testing, measuring. It's a little bit different over there. But once you get that going, it's uh, it's an amazing thing. Even small things like um, just a, just a story when you're meeting the vendors over there, and obviously it's a very traditional culture when you don't have your business card. So I had some meetings where I forgot my business card, and it was I was looked upon with horror by not by not having that differ, the differential you know handing yeah. the business card over, and and it and it definitely had an effect on the meeting. So you just have to be really respectful of, of every market you go to. So you're bridging these different cultures. So you're sitting head office, you're thinking there's the UK, European, Japanese, US way, but the brand 
is a constant globally. Yeah. Uh, what about the people? So you've mentioned the, the culture, but is there much mobility? I know you pick some up and send them to Japan to help set up Japan, or do people move within the company? And what about the skills across the business? So two questions, rudely <laughs> jammed into one. Let, let's start off about you know, how much mobility there is across the regions for staff. DECA is really committed to to allowing uh, uh, staff to move move here and there, and, and and we sometimes have had we have actually have someone over in our office from the US office at the moment mm-hmm. for um, for for six weeks, uh, spending time with us. Our, our, our director of technology is now in Japan for two months. Um, so there's there's lots of there's lots of moving around to try and get people to understand that business because you can't be truly global if you don't if you don't do that. Mm. Our head office is in Santa Barbara, California, so I think most people spend their time itching to try and uh, to, to get a role there. But I think the company's progressing enough that digital technology, which is when it's good and it's in your company and you want it to progress, you've got to allow these opportunities. Mm. And um, what about skills then? We were talking earlier on, uh, Vera, about the skills needed to to run not only the digital and multi-channel technologies, but also to operate in a global business. So um, is there a skill shortage? If so, where? If not, where you find these wonderful people? Uh, it goes back to what I was just saying, actually. I think that I don't necessarily think there's as, as much of a skill shortage as it felt there used to be, in, in, certainly in some areas. I think it's about retaining those, retaining those skills, those people in your business is, is, is the tough one because it's, it's such a fluid world of, of, of moving around. So... Would, if it had been a few years ago, if I was looking for developers for our web team, it would have been, um, it was really tricky to find them. And now they're, I'd say dime a dozen. They're not dime a dozen, but they're a lot easier to find. People are working in an agile methodology more. There are more product owners out there. Mm-hmm. There's just just more of these roles there that they, they are they are, they are coming in. I think where it gets a little bit more tricky is 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 when you're trying to meet the traditional retail or wholesale world and and trying to get people to move across and and, and likewise the other way. I think that's that's where we we need to spend investing more of our effort, and that's really about I guess a digital mindset in in more of us older folks in the business and, mm-hmm. and truly understanding it. If we think about skills that you also just mentioned earlier, you're very open for someone working in different offices. Uh, what about flexible working or any other incentives you're offering to your staff? Well, Deckers is a is a is a global business and has regions in you know it's China, U, uh, UK, um, Europe, obviously, um, Japan, and the US. So there is a need when you're working on global projects to be flexible. And think we, we really are looking at that. Core hours, ten till four, really important to us. So we allow we allow, allow allow our team to work in, come in and work late because they need to be on calls. And when you're working in a uh, working in an agile world, doing sprints with the US, you need to be there at the same time as them. So mm-hmm. and and, it, and, it, and it's it's a great retention tool if you're able to do that. Um, I just don't think that the traditional nine to five situation works anymore, especially in the world of digital. Yeah. Mm. And um, let's ask you to pull out your crystal ball. And uh, uh, just think about brands. I mean, you, you've you had a lot of experience with a variety of brands taking them direct to consumer. We're seeing that the real energy and growth at the moment is brands going straight to consumer, across all channels, maybe cutting out the retail. So you've got a retail wholesale business, direct to consumer, crystal ball time, looking ahead three, four years. Are you seeing that... Uh, your direct channel will be more important to you than wholesale. Decker's is still predominantly a wholesale business, and I think I think all the channels are important. I know it's a bit of a cop out answer, but you know, 
your being direct consumer, being the brand, is incredibly important to, to I think to help grow the brand, to help take risks, show mm. new products, you know, differentiate products. You know, uh, you know that's really important to us. But there are still wholesale partners out there that, that we need who have the volume, who are able to position us with the right consumers that we as a brand cannot reach. You know, the young whether it's younger consumers, whether it's affluent consumers in other countries, they're incredibly important to us. Um, and I think that will always that will always continue. Now, what will happen out there, maybe with the multi-brand retailers, and, and how many are there in, in four or five years, is going to be different. So that mix that mix will shift. Mm. But there's also you also have to consider the, the pure plays as well, and and and, and their marketplaces, and, and what's happening there as well. I think we're just seeing a shift in 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 um, you know the number of retailers out there. But I always think the wholesale channel will be important for most brands. Great. Uh, that was a good bit of uh, crystal balling, a uh, new verb. Before we let you uh, off the hook, uh, as you survey your executive uh, diary for the rest of the year, uh, anything sticking out, cunning project that you're actually really excited to do? Exciting projects for us at the moment. Not not quite at the moment. I think it's we've got a we we have a, a major replatforming going on at the moment that we're. We're very excited to complete next month, and I think it's really going to be focusing on for the team that that new world of, you know, being faster, more agile, and just being able to do things faster, more quickly. Right. Um, if I, you know, I, next year, next year is all the exciting, innovative stuff. That's though. that's when the uh, brakes yeah. are off, is it? That's when the brakes are off. All, all yeah, yeah, all the. All so you're the off. first person who's done the darkest before the dawn kind of uh, <laughs> thing for the rest of the year. Well, look, David, uh, enjoy the uh, shoveling and pickaxing to get the uh, platform in place. Uh, thanks for that. You're not going anywhere because we've locked the door, of course, but we are shifting attention now to Rio. Rio, welcome. Now, head of e-commerce for Beyond Retro. So uh, just tell us a bit about... Beyond Retro and how it started? Uh, so Beyond Retro, uh, for those that haven't heard of us, we sell vintage clothing. And we sell in the UK, um, we have stores. And in Sweden, we have stores. And obviously, we have an online presence. So we can sell to the whole world. So when you say vintage, we're not talking about Victorian waistcoats and whalebone corsets. So when, when does vintage start? <laughs> we would sell uh, <laughs> whalebone corsets and things like that if we could get our hands on them. But that's kind, kind of a, a really <laughs> rare thing to be able to find. So vintage, really, we sell product from the 60s through to the 90s and the noughties now. Mm. So when we say vintage, we're actually talking um, a lot of the time about secondhand clothing. Um, so we don't kind of sell things that you might have bought recently in H&M um, or Topshop, but we will sell something that's perhaps kind of only 10 years old. Just tell me then about the style selection, because not every 10 or 20 year old product is now fashion or desirable. Uh I've proven to my kids that I'm incapable of saying which one is or isn't. So how do you pick the things that qualify as vintage versus the things that should be just recycled and you know save the planet? So in that sense, we're actually quite similar to a lot of um, kind of more normal fashion businesses. Um, so we have a buying team um, and we have trend reports. So seasonally, we report back to our um pickers who are based all over the world on what the trends are and what they should be looking out for, what we predict we're going to sell based on trend forecasts and also previous year sales data. 
And as well as that, we're always looking for key vintage pieces. So we always know we want to look for vintage Levi's. We've always got certain types of clothing, uh, like 70s metal zipper dresses, things like that, that we constantly train our kind of selection teams to look out for. So there's, um, yeah, it's a mix of really kind of trend-driven buying and traditional vintage buying as well. And how often are these trends changing um, twice a year, four times a year, or is there, can't you say really? Uh, yeah, no, so it's seasonal. It okay. really follows high street trends. We might move a tiny bit slower than the high street sometimes, but generally um, the kind of trends that you're seeing on the high street, whether it be sportswear, um, kind of festival trends, we're following the exact same thing. So we have a trend calendar just like kind of most high street fashion businesses that we have to follow. And there's a percentage of our customer who shop that way. Mm. Um, and it influences most people's buying behavior, actually, whether they realize it or not. So tell us a bit about these pickers then, because if you were a normal retailer, you'd put in an order, you'd manufacture things, be saying, that's a style, I have 10,000 of them. In your case, you'd be saying, here's a style, uh, dispatch the pickers. Now, are they grabbing clothes off old people's backs or raiding <laughs> uh, their local Oxfam? How, how do you manage, A, to get, get to deploy them and B, to then manage your supply side? So there are rag houses all over the world. So what is a rag house? That sounds yeah. like, you know, somewhere at a crossroads in a dusty area. What is a rag house? It does, doesn't it? So there are huge, um, they're called rag houses. They're huge warehouses. Um, lots of them are in North America. Um, some of them are in the Middle East, um, India, so really all over the world. And they're, yeah, enormous warehouses that secondhand clothing basically kind of ends up in. So when it's been through its secondhand life cycle, wherever that started, it ends up in rag houses. And when I say rag houses, I do mean sometimes rag. Um, sometimes it's hospital rag, sometimes it's military rag, sometimes it is just secondhand clothing. You're not painting a nice picture. Yeah, just... <laughs> it's, and these, you know, tens of thousands of square feet worth of kind of rag moving around. And they're actually like, they're really robust facilities. Um, so don't kind of, you know, imagine that people are drowning under piles of clothing as they pick. But we have teams of um, pickers based in certain rag houses around the world. And yeah, we train them and we communicate with them all the time as to kind of what we're looking for, what we need in terms of quantity, style. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, it gets graded and the stuff that is good enough and we deem a high enough grade to sell, and we buy. Wow. And, it, yeah, and what's the cycle around. on this then? So, you know, are people uh, having sort of CIA-style headsets and night vision goggles and you're sending out an instruction for eight and a half tonnes of Levi's is all completed in three minutes or is this a three-month cycle? I mean, I'm trying to, I just can't quite imagine yeah. <laughs> the sort of management operational side of, you know, the rag houses at the end of the universe. Uh, yeah. You know. No, it's a long cycle. So we actually think really far ahead. Um, we've got really amazing um, data and analysis system that helps our buying team here in the UK know what we need um, kind of 12 and even further than 12 months ahead. So we, and obviously all of this stuff is shipped like on water. So it takes actually a long time to move the product around the world to where we need it to end up, whether that's in the UK or Sweden. 
um, or online. So we use Google Hangouts most of the time, to be honest. We spend, uh, our buying team spend a lot of time talking to the picking teams around the world. Um, we look a lot of the product on the screen through Hangouts and also our buying team travel. So they're on the road a lot. Wow. Yeah. So talk to me about the environmental impact. Again, I'm just trying to understand this. On the one hand, I'm thinking things get a final life and you know, that's obviously good. But yet there's a lot of transportation. So to get to this end of the universe rag house, I assume it's notched up quite a few air miles to get there and then we're bringing it back. So is there an environmental argument or is that not a driver? It's just finding good clothes wherever they may be? Um, no, I mean, that's a really good question. Sustainability uh, is really at the core of everything we do as a business. So our founder, Stephen, that's that's his MO. Hmm. He wants to close the loop on fashion. He wants people to be able to shop in a more sustainable way. And so everything we do, we think about our impact. So we don't actually fly anything anywhere. We ship everything moves on water. We don't ship unless we're filling containers. We don't move anything around actually between any of our businesses mm. unless we're moving as much as we can and, you know, kind of as the best way we possibly can. So I hopefully it's, yeah, as sustainable as it can be. I did a little bit of research and I came across your great brand, Label. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so Label is an amazing team we have of um, designers and um, kind of seam seamstresses. Is that the right word? Uh, I'm sure there must be a gender neutral. <laughs> yeah. uh, Wrong word. Seamsters. Tailors. Tailors. <laughs> anyway, yeah. carry on. <laughs> um, and they actually take product that can't be resold and rework it into pieces that can so we use a lot of that skill to fill gaps that we can't fill with vintage products so mm. we might know that um we can't find enough of a, a certain grade um of denim shorts for example so they'll take jeans that can't be sold and aren't a good enough grade and they'll rework them into denim shorts or they'll do the same they'll take a shirt and rework it into a bag um, that, that would mm. fill a gap in our product range. So, um, yeah, really amazing stuff. So from an e-com perspective then, where everybody expects that everything's available all the time, given your unmanageable, in some ways, buying cycle, and then the delays from batching product until it's environmental to ship it, managing availability and stock and range on the website sounds to me like uh, a nightmare problem I wouldn't like to have. How, how do you manage that? We, yeah, we just manage it with data. Honestly, we think really far ahead. And right. we, you know, we forecast um, to the nth degree what we should be able to sell and what we hope to sell. Uh, but as you say, it's, you know, it's not anybody's, you know, dream. There's no kind mm. of perfect answers to it. So it's, it is... A challenge, that's for sure. But it's yeah. a really exciting challenge. Yeah. So how do you fit in with with style makers? So 
uh, we hear a lot about Instagram and visual social media driving not just a trend, but multiple parallel trends. I see my kids buying and selling things I'm too fat to wear on Depop and calling it vintage, where in fact it's just old stuff. So there seems to be this vintage awareness, but also massive amounts of style awareness. So do you have data on that, or are you having to take a punt and put a finger in the air or set styles? Uh, yeah, we have data on that. And as I said, a lot of it's just driven from trend forecasting. So in fact, it's just way more style driven than most people mm. assume um, our businesses. And the nice thing is, I think that now, um, you know, there was a day where we would turn up to a party, probably wearing the same dress as someone else. But the high street is so vast now and people have the option to shop vintage or secondhand. And actually, you kind of, you know, we're in London, so it's a bit more extreme, but you only have to walk down the street to see that everybody is so much more unique mm. than we were kind of 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm. And that's what people want. You know, people really don't want to look like everyone else. We all want to follow the right, you know, a style. We know yeah. what fashion is. So similar but different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, we uh, recently released our analyst sector report on fast fashion. The things that struck me about it were, firstly, the massive pressure on supply chain excellence. It was extraordinary. And then the other one was on the, the incredible range. But it leads towards a lot of criticism for disposable uh, consumption, economic impact. So it, it seems like you're trying to straddle both things where the customers have choice, but without the environmental impact of fast fashion. Is, is that fair or am I just romanticising that? No, that's absolutely fair. I mean, the great thing about shopping vintage and secondhand is you do get that feel-good factor. You're not contributing to this fast fashion economy that we all know now is so detrimental. Mm -hmm. um, so it's always kind of been, as I said, it's kind of the ethos of what we do. But now it's a real consideration for your normal high street shopper. Right. Um, so everybody knows that buying fast fashion, buying often, buying cheap, throwing it away and not knowing where it ends up is not a good thing mm. um, and it's not a sustainable thing. So, yeah, we're absolutely, you know, it's great that we can, we can help people shop sustainably, we can help educate people, they can feel okay about their purchasing decisions. Great. Um, yeah, it's great. Now, one thing, uh, I'm sure you thought I'd let it slip, but it was da -da -da, UK and Sweden. Yeah. So um, just tell me about the link. In my mind, I'm thinking about leather trench coats and heavy metal T-shirts. <laughs> I know last time you said that was just a terrible, uh, <laughs> cliched misrepresentation. So what is it about UK plus Sweden on this, you know, uh, alliance for sustainable vintage fashion? Yeah, I mean, we just, um, the company saw an opportunity in Sweden and took it. So it's kind of twofold, really, because in Sweden, there was a real demand for vintage fashion. Um, and at the time, I believe it was very different to it is now. I think it was kind of 60s. They were looking for the mod 50s and 60s style fashion. Um, and, you know, there was a gap in the market for it. So we filled it. Um, but actually, on, you know, in parallel to that, Sweden 
have always been excellent at shopping in a sustainable way. They really care a lot about their environment. They've kind of been years ahead of the UK in how they shop. And secondhand shopping is much more of a norm for them. Mm. Um, So they'll, you know, on their high street, they'll kind of go to H&M and they'll go to Beyond Retro and they're not particularly concerned. And there's nothing else in between. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so it fits their market really well. And great. um, we're really successful. And now, you know, it's less kind of 60s, it's more sportswear, high quality denim that they're looking for in the vintage world. But yeah, they, they're a great market for us. Excellent. Yeah. You obviously have an online presence. The world is your oyster in that regard. Um, you mentioned Sweden. What's next? I'm just thinking Berlin. There's loads of people in vintage clothing in Berlin. Yeah, well. <laughs> we love Berlin. Well, so we've got quite aggressive expansion plans. Um, next will probably still be in the Nordic region, but definitely over the kind of Next few years, we do plan to open a good number of stores. Yeah, so you're a leader of stores or use online to gauge demand? We do, yeah, we do use online to gauge demand. So we take a lot of data from our online analytics, uh, which helps inform kind of our store, uh, our brick strategy. Um, but yeah, online, we have a big push um, to help. So Sweden are obviously a big customer of ours online because they really know the brand, but we have to make it easier for them to shop with better shipping offers, mm. um, easier returns, things like that. And we So seen, unlike the Japanese, they do return then? They do, yeah, <laughs> still not as much. as I mean, the UK, we are crazy, crazy returners, mm-hmm. I think. But actually, Germany is a really big emerging market for us online. I just wanted yeah. to say, when you, if you don't want to go to a country with loads of returns, don't go to Germany, because oh. Germans love returns. Oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good to know. Mm. Um, and America as well, we get a lot of orders from America. Right. Um, so, and that's something, you know, I don't think we plan to open stores in America in the near future. Um, so that will be completely an online strategy mm. for us as, as we try and grow that market. Touching on the near future then, David's busy getting his platform ready. What does the rest of the year have for you? What, what's exciting you as you prep for this uh, aggressive next phase? Yeah, so big focus on regions, as we were just discussing um, for us. But also we have, unfortunately, I'm not allowed to actually talk about it. But we Oh no, really, no one's listening. A really no one's listening. exciting just, just project yeah, coming up. Um, and it will launch this year, so we'll probably launch Q4. Maybe You're just teasing us now. But we're really going to close the loop um, on See, fashion. I reckon um, this is just a blatant ploy <laughs> to come to get me back. back. <laughs> come back. Yeah. That's it. Uh, consider the date. Before we go, it's the Antiques Roadshow question. What happens when one of your pickers finds, I don't know, Elvis's jeans or uh, a vintage Chanel twin set does that ever happen or yeah yeah a lot I mean probably weekly so yeah well no I mean I wish we found more Chanel twin sets that would be amazing but we do we find amazing stuff all the time Uh, most of it actually lives in our archive here in London and we use the archive to train staff um, oh, we allow designers Sweet. to come in, um, and also people can, you know, collectors can come and purchase from our archive. So some of it ends up in stores, some of it ends up online. Um, wow. But uh, yeah, they're really, really special pieces. So, hey, I think we need to come and have a little visit with uh, 
you know, the camera to have a look at the vintage stuff definitely. and uh, up our, uh, our fashion credentials, even if in my case it is definitely uh, 40 years out of date. So for once, <laughs> it might even be uh, on trend. Hira, thanks so much. But let's now turn our heads towards Rachel. So we've done feet, which are now covered in furry Uggs, clothed ourselves in vintage. We need now a bag. So Rachel, you are was Radley in some respects. Tell us tell us about Radley and your role, please. Radley. Um, I went there last August, a um, bit of a departure for me. I'd worked in accessories before, but jewellery. So, yeah, handbags, like you say, it's the ultimate accessory. Um, a really lovely brand, so nice heritage, but it's only been around about 20 years, which I think most people don't realise. Mm. And it really had that brand, brand recognition when I went there. And everybody, even like things like taxi drivers, were saying, the one with the dog. Yeah, the one with the dog. <laughs> and it's the in case anybody doesn't know, the dog is the one that's like on the shortbread, isn't it? Yes. yes. So it's a Highland Terrier. It's a little black Scotty dog called Radley. Um, and the background to that is Laura Harder, who was the founder of the brand back in Camden Lock about 20 years ago. She'd seen a dog walker in a black coat with a red hat and the dog had a matching lead. And it was really all about quirky handbags and you know, a little bit eccentric. Um, so sort of very safe and sensible for a lot of people as a bag choice, but also it's always got this little quirky element um, mm. and it's a really playful brand in that way. So who is your average buyer? Who, who is the loyal Radley customer? It really varies. And actually, I think we've got two different streams. And I think because it is a sort of been around for about 20 years, we're now getting a sort of younger consumer again. Because I think previously it was a little bit older and it was the disposable income bracket. So, you know, women in their 40s, lots of people buy it for a work bag. Um, but now you're getting sort of a lot, lot more of a younger market. Um, there's some really quirky styles. So our picture bags are a really big seller and they're quite collectible. So we did a big one last year for the 20th birthday. Um, and we do one every year, sort of Chinese New Year and we've got quite, you know, quite a lot of collectors. So there's quite a diverse mix of people. So, you know, I know friends of mine that bought them just for their work bag. And yet I know other people that it's their sort of prized possession. So it's it's a really diverse mix and, and definitely getting younger, I think. I think there's more people looking to invest. And I think, you know, just as Ray said about sort of the sustainability, people are looking more to invest in a good handbag at a younger age. Looking at the younger generations, how do you reach them? What's What's your way? We're definitely starting to do more on social media, more on influencers. Um, Instagram's quite a big channel, I think, because it's so visual. Um, for us, that's that's a big key one. And I think as well, very much word of mouth. I think particularly with something like a handbag that you carry every day, people really do talk about it. Um, so for us, I think social media is definitely something we're looking to explore more and more. Um, and also everyone had the sort of GDPR fun last year where we all had to go down the route of you know, what we did about email and things. And social is sort of slightly less constraining in a way. Um, it still feels slightly more organic um, and it kind of gives us a bit more dialogue. So, you know, and, and the other thing we're doing a lot more is sort of brand ambassadors. We were really lucky recently to work with Johanna Conta, you know, with Wimbledon. And that was really exciting. And it was really exciting for everyone at the brand as well. You know, and she was a brilliant, brilliant part of the story. And, you know, this idea of women of spirit and substance who've really got something to say and something to do. So I think, you know, there's, there's definitely ways that we're kind of starting to communicate the brand differently um, and bring it to life again. And I think probably that's part of the Radley journey. I think it, we did it in the beginning and I think that's where it's going back to. Great. So what's the difference between an influencer and an ambassador? I mean, there is obviously, I suppose, the paid element and the kind of public recognition piece. Um, and I think I've always been a big advocate of things like referral marketing, you know, the idea that, you know, people just talk to each other. The ambassador for us was more about pitching the the bags differently. So to be able to show them in more of a, a 
a, a different situation. You know, so to actually have Joanna Con to take out a Radley bag on to Centre Court Wimbledon, I mean, we were so excited. We were sat there in the office, you know, spotting it on the screen. And, and I think that's the real life use of the bag. And I think it brings it to life in a, in a different way. Mm. Um, and I think influences is about a meal, more of a real life dynamic. Um, but for us, it's just opening up a different conversation, I think. Mm. So I know you've only been here since August, but um, can you sketch the journey from Camden Lock stall to Posh store? I don't know. I can, I'm qualified quite to tell the whole story, but I think, you know, for us, definitely wholesale has been a big part of that um, and department stores. And, you know, we, we've got our flagship, like David mentioned, we've got flagship stores, you know, our one in Floral Street. Um, is a big part of the piece. And I think department stores for us regionally are, are quite important. And again, that's about people being able to go to touch and feel the product. And online, I think online, particularly internationally, is key. And I think there's a real appetite internationally for British brands, um, and particularly sort of heritage brands like ours. Although it, it's a relatively infantile brand, yeah. it's got that feel young of heritage. a young heritage. And I think that's the authenticity piece that brings the heritage. You know, it's got a true story behind it. Hmm. Um, so... Definitely globally, I think wholesale has been a big part. So, you know, when you're in QVC in the US or Macy's, those kind of um, retailers really advocate for brands like ours. Um, and that's what makes them great. Um, and it does give us some traction. It does take us new audiences. But there's always that challenge of then converting them to be a brand customer rather than... So let's, let's maybe look at that. Because I know when I was uh, doing work with House of Fraser, Radley was a, a hot concession and added to the House of Fraser mix, but there's always a balance between, you know, who's helping whom, you know, who's piggybacking of whose brand. So, you know, when you look at the balance uh, of wholesale versus direct, uh, are you like Diplomatic David saying they'll all coexist um, in a happy way forever? Or uh, is there a trend one way or...? I think... They coexist to a point, but I think as a brand, I mean, it's our in-house design team that ultimately drive the story. Um, and it is things like our marketing campaigns and the ambassadors we choose to work with that drive the brand equity that then the, the department stores need. So I think although they coexist, I think, yeah, we all know that the department stores have overall struggled. Um, and I think that is because generally people are looking more for brands and that identity. Um, and particularly the millennial market, they really want, you know, what they wear and what they carry to to talk about their identity. So I think we're all kind of go through a bit of a, as mentioned earlier, brand reclamation when, you know, when we were talking about the fact that department stores are retailers, but we're the brands. And I think they've all helped us get on a journey in terms of how we sell. So, you know, the department stores are so instrumental in terms of how we do omni-channel and how we, you know, how we sell online and all the developments that have come through. You know, House of Fraser and John Lewis were ahead of all of us on that. But I think now we're all starting to catch up. Hmm. And so it's a bit more of an equitable playing field. Um, but there'll always be the piece for us, I think, as a brand that, you know, we're a privately owned company. And, and I think definitely it's two different models. You know, wholesale, we get, everyone gets the money up front. And I think that's, that's a big piece for any retailer out there. And we'd all be lying if we didn't say that everybody was looking at the bottom line all the time. Hmm. But one of the things about department stores where you can come into conflict with brands is the discount strategy. So uh, over the last decade, we've seen red crosses, blue crosses, you know, customers don't get out of bed if it's only 50% off, I'll wait till the 70%. So part of this reclaiming the brand must also be reclaiming your pricing and discount structure 
when you're not within the context of a department store's seasonality and cash demands? Definitely. I think we have you know, really consciously, since I've been there, really been looking at how we show the value of the product. And I think, again, this is where some of the social media strategy comes in, you know, making the product desirable again, because I think we'd all gone down this route, partly led by the department stores, that was um, price wars. Mm. And actually, it was really damaging for everybody as a brand and, and as consumers, because I think no one was ever satisfied with their purchase because everyone was looking out for the next offer. And actually, you know, we all used to love shopping online. You get your pass and it's really exciting. And now there was almost this awareness of price that was yeah. almost killing the retail journey for everybody, including consumers. So it's been really nice to be part of this journey at Radley that we're, we're really into brand elevation. And it's really about the brand again, which it has been difficult. But I think because of some of the issues with the department stores um, and because they've been so publicly in the press, I think it's been easier for us all to do and mm. to, to make that break and not to be so led anymore by their strategies and actually to develop our own. Uh, on a more cheery note, you said playful. Yeah. So I can see the little dog. Uh, I don't really get handbags. Uh, how, how would how do I identify the playfulness in the brand? How does it take form that, that I could recognise? There is always a quirky element to all the bags. There really is. You know, everyone, they will have a little dog. We actually have a, a series of picture bags that are extremely playful. So they've got, you know, designs all over them. And those are fascinating. There's a video we've got that shows, you know, there's about 30 pairs of hands handle a, a picture bag. Um, and they've got, you know, beautiful detail in them. And they, they tell a bit of a story. It might be a quirky colour. It might be a quirky lining. I love all my rally bags that have random hidden pockets. You know, for me, I've always got travel passes or things shoved in a pocket. So for me, it's... It's about that element. But I think it's also about different consumers. So everyone finds something different depending on who they are. So I think, you know, even if it's a sensible work bag, just the fact it has a dog on it is, you know, or your laptop bag and it's got a little dog charm, I think, makes it that little bit more personable. Fine. I can feel uh, our listener groaning at uh, me not getting that. So apologies. But now you are not normal in the nicest way. Because... <laughs> Most of the heads of e-commerce we see have come up from a marketing background. Uh, a smaller number have come from a technology background. But you are an out-and-out merchandiser. So yeah. tell us about that move from merchandising to owning the online channel. And, and do you think that's different? It gives you a different perspective than if you'd come from the marketing tradition? I suppose it does. I mean, I, I took a long time before I was confident to say that I was a digital marketer because, like you say, my background was pure retail. Um, and I started off back in the day at Bay Trading and, you know, merch admin and my spreadsheets and managing stock and flow. And, I mean, I was really lucky because I was actually at Tesco's at a point where they were sort of taking on the world and I, I moved into online. But I did it again through merchandising. I did it through commercial stock packages and what we were going to, which stock we were going to have to launch the website. Um, I think I've been really lucky timing-wise, definitely. I think I've been able to see a lot of the developments through. So, you know, we're looking to replatform at Radley um, in the next few months. And actually, I didn't realise I'd done a replatform. I did it back in 2014 and we did it from scratch and we built a bit, lots of it ourselves and we had to spec it out ourselves. But, um, you know, coming from a merchandising background, it's always been about retail first. So I suppose I am lucky in the sense of, you know, everyone's talking about customer experience and those kind of things in the moment. And in some ways, I've always done that because I've just been a mm. retailer first um, rather than had to sort of adapt a digital marketing mindset. 
So it's always been about customers probably rather than traffic for me, which makes it a little bit easier. And so I think I've always been the one asking IT difficult questions from a retailer's perspective rather than from a techie perspective. Right, general nodding uh, around the table. So you're a niche brand looking to grow. Uh, They drop you an email saying, what would be your top tip? A young heritage brand growing. What do you suggest they focus on? I don't think my CEO will want to hear this, but I almost think there's an element of ignoring the competition. I think, you know, there's this thing about having a unique selling point, you know, and and cultivate your own discussions. Because I think, you know, I've worked in the luxury sector and I think that was one of my frustrations was probably the fact that we spent a lot of time whenever I suggested doing something digitally or someone came up with a brilliant idea, this idea of, but who else is doing it? Mm. And I think where all the brands that are really succeeding at the moment, they've all got a USP that no one else has got and if we all sort of follow the competition and that's what the department stores did that's how they struggled with with the promotional strategy you know and i think it's about finding your talking point and your customers Mm -hmm. it's interesting you're mentioning that um we have a smaller luxury brand but they say they're much more agile and they actually don't follow the competition and they partnered with sports brands so they created their own um different products together with them and they said that actually gave them the opportunity first to go after the younger audience but also they went ahead of the game and then after that it seemed like the bigger ones in vertical commerce tried to copy them so it's interesting that you're mentioning that that's good i think it's i learned that a lot when i was in the jewelry sector and i think we were in you know i was working for h samuel for a number of years and it was it was different because we didn't really look at the competition and maybe that's because it was slower turning product we almost didn't need to and you were sort of it was a needs-based purchase you know you wanted a watch or you wanted an engagement ring because you were going to propose so there was a reason to buy that was unique to your business that as long as you fulfilled that customer need and then you didn't need to and then that's where the exciting developments in tech come from as well when you actually just meet something that's unique to your business so we're looking forward to see that journey I'm really excited, actually, with Radley, because I think the replatform is is our opportunity to kind of rewrite the rulebook a little bit. And as David said earlier, it's about making the teams more agile. And there's so much more tech out there that will just make all of our lives easier as well as make it better for customers. Great. Well, look, on that positive note, the clock has run away with us. So we need to bid farewell to our listener for this month. Viewer, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Ria, Rachel, David, thank you very much. Until next time, until Ria, you come back and tell us what your secret project was. (laughs) Thank you all. Ta-da! There you are. How was that? Not too bad. Good. So what 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 did we cover off? Was there anything we didn't cover off? I don't know. We could have gone for another hour, couldn't we? Once we got into it, we could have gotten loads. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. Yeah. Like loads about rag houses. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And pickers. Uh, rag houses and pickers. That's yeah. that's the sort of mid, a millennial job. Is it someone's full time job? Or is it like yeah. a student doing it on the side? No, full-time job. Wow. They must be quite committed, though, so you don't just walk in and... I think you need to have a passion about it. She this. must have We're to love it, you yes. Tell us now, can't you? Now you're on the podcast, come on, what are you doing? Come yeah, on, I mean, on. I have to confess, I've never met a picker. I mean, they are yeah. they are oh, all right. over the world. But they so. do exist. Yeah. And how many I've are there? I've seen them on the screen talking to our buying, our head of buying and our buying team. Yeah. How many? Probably like... I don't know, maybe around 100, if not more. Wow. That's extraordinary. Well, I guess you'd need it, wouldn't you? I suppose. You need to be quick yeah. as well with those well, we have to yeah. say to them, How many stores have you got? So, 
five, six, nine, nine stores. So we have to say to nine them, stores. We need six thousand pairs of Levi's, not just jeans. Like are they fighting off other people do they have like pike staffs so they're stopping yeah. other pickers I think they must no, I don't know but is it, is it like some sort of mafia union where you you know you pass the job on from father to son with the the pike you, staff of picking. I'll put you in touch with our um, founder because he he can answer all of these, and he's so interesting. All right, that's like, it. So we're coming to see yeah. your uh, yeah, your museum, and we're going to come and do that. And then picking. Bell staff have yeah. a luxury archive as well, which is all there because they are really an old oh. brand. So again, it's sort of similar. But we were doing those stuff because, you know, like you say, where it's trended through. Because yeah. I think yeah. it's fascinating. All the stuff that we all used to wear as kids are now coming back, and I was like, oh yeah. my god. Oh yeah. So but it's also what about the, what about the Ugg archive? Is there an archive? Of, I would like to see it. Fleeced sheep to somewhere. Let's not be honest. It's, a, it's an archived old marketing material, which is very entertaining. Nice. Right. Oh, which is quite but, uh, back from the old days of uh, <laughs> when it was, you know, because it's an Australian guy who, who lived and moved to, uh, moved to America. Oh, it's it? 40 years old. Okay. Mm. 40 last year. But it was a foot, men's footwear brand for 15 years. Yeah. So that was because it was about wearing, keeping your feet warm off, off after surfing. So. Very different. It was only became a women's wear brand at mid nineties. Because we were slippers yeah, at the beginning, yeah. right? Well, it was it was the it was the classic. Mm. Yeah. But when I was in your was it Santa Barbara, mm. Santa Clara, Santa, Santa somewhere Santa office, uh, they had this old material of you know gnarly surfers yeah. with these. Yeah. I mean. I don't want to say there was actual blood on it, but it literally looked as if it had been taken off a sheep unwillingly <laughs> and strapped on their feet. And they were just you know, waxing their boards with these crudely made... It's funny you see the original prototypes of stuff, though. It's like the Hoka brands like that. It's like the, the original prototypes that they made literally were bits of foam, you know, running down mountains and putting these big oversized... It literally looked like, well, you know, they, they kind of like some polystyrene packing strapped to their feet. But it's amazing when you see, what you know, the ideas that come out of it and how it gets... Kind of gets reshaped yeah, into and polished you know, and polished into something that's still wow. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. well, on the polishing front, let's go and polish off some uh, coffee outside. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you.